Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is show number 305, and we're very happy to have uh, Mr. Tom Nizzle on with us. You've probably seen Tom on the Weather Channel. He's a winter weather expert, uh, has since retired, but finds himself close to the Carolinas. And uh, we are happy to have Tom here as we're in the heart of winter weather uh, season. We thought, well, it's appropriate to have Tom on. So, Tom, welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. We're uh, happy uh, to have you on with us this evening. Uh, it's, it's great to be with you all. And, uh, you know, I'm originally from up north in Buffalo, New York, but now I'm right next door to you, uh, just across the border in a place called uh, Roan Mountain, Tennessee. Yes, Roan Mountain, Tennessee. You probably heard about that on the show here. Ricky Matthews, uh, meteorologist up in the uh, Bristol, Tennessee area, talks about Roan Mountain, as does Evan Fisher, who goes up um, several times throughout the winter season. Uh, to do some snow chases. So you've heard about Roan Mountain, so now you can kind of put a face uh, with the place tonight. So Tom, uh, you have uh, been dubbed the winter weather expert at the Weather Channel. Uh, you worked for the National Weather Service. Uh, you've um, been able to develop some weather programs and tools. Kind of talk to us about your weather journey. How did you catch uh, <laughs> the, the weather bug? Uh, kind of go through uh, with us uh, on your journey and, and how you got to each stop along that journey. Yeah, well, thank you. And again, thanks for having me on. This is an honor. Uh, uh, you know, like so many of you that, that are in tune uh, to this podcast, uh, you're weather geeks, right? You're weather weenies. And something turned you on at some point in your life. For me, uh, coming from Buffalo, New York, of course, um, you know, they say up there there's two seasons, July 4th and winter. And uh, uh, we, of course, um, really got to enjoy winter as kids. I also live very close to the Buffalo Airport. And uh, when I was a little one, there were 10 boys in my neighborhood. My dad used to load all the kids into the car and go over to the airport to watch airplanes. And we'd park next to this crazy looking building. It had a little dome on top of it. But while the rest of my friends were watching the airplanes, that building was the upper air site for the Buffalo Weather Office. And that's where they set up the weather balloons. And I got interested in weather just by watching the technicians taking readings and sending up balloons. And uh, my love of winter weather, of course, was in my DNA, because when you live in Buffalo, you learn to enjoy the snow and get out and play in it. So that was kind of my beginnings. And Tom, talking about winter weather, um, before we kind of transition into more conversationally, uh, winter weather is different. You know, you said you grew up in Buffalo, you're kind of used to it. Now you live here in the south in Tennessee, where the mounds of Tennessee obviously sees more snow than when let's say you lived in Atlanta, Georgia. So can you talk a little bit about the differences of how people perceive snow maybe in Buffalo compared to here in the Southeast? Well, yeah, it is fascinating. And you know, when I lived up North, we used to, and I mean this in sort of a respectful way, but we would laugh at the people down South having all kinds of problems with a few inches of snow. Well, then I moved down to Atlanta and we got a couple of interesting events with only a couple of inches of snow, but temperatures below 32 degrees that turned that snow immediately into ice. Atlanta's a pretty hilly area. I came from flatlands up in Buffalo, and I very quickly found out that when there's no salt to salt the roads and treat the roads, and you're in hilly conditions, I don't care how good a driver you are, you're going to be stranded. You can't get around in that kind of weather. And so it's not as much that people are wimpy in the south and can't handle the snow. You're just not set up for it. So it, it was a really interesting education to me. But it was also fascinating when I first got to the Weather Channel that 
when we would talk about snow in the south, I would kind of just push it off like, yeah, there's going to be a little bit down here. And everybody would say, no, no, no. That's the point. All you have to say is the word snow, and it puts everyone into a panic. Ain't that the truth? Um, you know, the time, you know, that we're talking about this we just recently had a snow scare uh here in charleston somebody uh, a snowflake showed up on the app and everybody freaked out so it's uh i get it <laughs> I, yeah. I, I lived down here a long yeah. time and uh it just freaks everybody out so let's talk a little bit about you you you've started um you know you're you, you really got your big uh time in weather before you came to the weather channel you were at the national weather service up in buffalo you were uh uh uh, up there did a lot of really you know a, a lot of really cool things that we're going to talk about here uh later in the show such as buff kid and um but also naming winter storms uh was something that came out of the buffalo office as i recall um want to talk a little bit about that and just how that uh, you know in just your time up there and and how uh the uh winter storm names came to be <laughs> well uh Let's start with career real quickly here. It's, you know, it's great to be in the right place at the right time. When I graduated from uh, college with a bachelor's degree out of uh, State University of New York in Oswego, one of the lake effect snow capitals of the world, uh, I worked research for about three years in the Buffalo area and atmospheric science and then transferred over to, at that time, the Weather Bureau, now the National Weather Service Office uh, in, in Buffalo. And uh, you know, immediately uh, began this interest in lake effect snow, this crazy type of snowstorm where it can be snowing in one part of your town with two feet of snow and 10 miles away, you could have green grass. I, you know, I was born and raised with that, but I didn't understand it that well. So getting into the weather service office in Buffalo really sprang my career into uh, learning more about lake effect snow. And, uh, you know, as I went through that career there, a 32-year career, I went from a forecaster to a science officer and eventually uh, the meteorologist in charge there in Buffalo. Uh, great time. Just a wonderful time to work in an office where so many people had an interest in uh, winter weather. And, uh, you know, we, we developed a lot of tools to help predict winter weather. So tell me a little bit about, um, you know, you, you worked on some really innovative things, including BuffKit. And, and BuffKit is, you know, we love it here for fog prediction, um, smoke dispersal, things like that. Uh, talk a little bit about, you know, what that was like, you know, seeing that get off the ground and um, how that has been applied across the weather enterprise. Yeah, BuffKit. It's a fascinating, fascinating story about a tool that was developed by forecasters for forecasters in the operational environment. Uh, way back when, when I started in the weather service, there were only a, a very basic computer models with very basic information. Uh, but in uh, getting to network with people from Washington, DC, we were able to pull much more data out of the computers at Washington and be able to develop programs that would display that information and that data, forecast information on an hourly basis from computer models that up to the point in my career, you only got information and weather forecast at 12 hour intervals at just the mandatory levels in the atmosphere. So we, we had this plethora of tremendous amounts of data that were coming into our offices, but no way to really display them. And we developed this tool called BuffKit. I was in on the ground floor with the development of that. But the guy who was really responsible was a, a guy by the name of Ed Mahoney. 
that still is in the National Weather Service at the Warning Decision Training Branch out in Norman, Oklahoma. Ed was an amazing programmer. Came in as our science officer to Buffalo. And over the course of about a year and a half, it turned into this magical laboratory right within the forecast office. We would say to Ed, you know, we want a tool that's gonna to help us predict fog or maybe predict strong winds with momentum transfer down through the atmosphere. Ed would look at the data, go into his office, sit down at the computer like Scotty at the computer in the enterprise, right? And just type away, type away, type away. And about three hours later, come out with another tool that we added to this toolkit designed in Buffalo and hence the name Buffkit. I wanted to get back in, into one of the topics that we, we brought up a little while ago, which was uh, lake effect snow. So Buffalo being on the eastern side of Lake Erie, we all heard stories about just some of the amazing amounts of snow that fall from lake effect snow in the Buffalo area. Specifically, a couple of years back, there's about five feet of snow that fell during one event that um, it was forecast. It was, uh, it was a huge event. But talk to, to some of our viewers about what is lake effect snow and how you understood it in your office. How, how did you forecast for that? Lake effect snow, of course, we talk about lake effect. It's mainly in reference to the Great Lakes, though it can occur in bodies of water all around the, uh, the world. Uh, essentially, they're a snowstorm on about the scale of a summertime thunderstorm. So they can only sometimes be just a few miles wide across the length of a band of snow that comes off the lake itself. The snow develops as cold air comes across that relatively warm water of the Great Lakes. So you may be moving air at maybe 10 degrees Fahrenheit across a lake that's 40 degrees. You get a tremendous amount of latent heat release and uh, heat and moisture that actually rise off the lake into that air and as it continues to rising, cools, condenses into snow. And then the wind direction is what determines where that snow falls. So as the winds change direction, the snow band will move downwind of that. And that's what the big challenge is to predict lake effect snow. You gotta think about the fact that you're predicting for one side of a city, maybe two feet of snow. Whereas your friends that live on the other side of the city may see no snow at all. So. It was a tremendous forecast challenge. And early on in my career, it was long before you guys were, some of you may be on the face of the earth, um, computer models were at a much lower resolution because you didn't have the computer power uh, to, to uh, work with these models. And some of these early models did not even see the Great Lakes. That is the Great Lakes weren't, weren't even an input into the model. So they wouldn't even recognize the, the ability to predict or simulate a lake effect snowstorm. So early on, we actually had forecast methods that we used to predict these snows. And again, you see the Great Lakes there. These are huge bodies of water. I mean, they compose 20% of the fresh water in the world. I think about that. And I, I read a, a statistic on that. If you take all the water in the Great Lakes and you spread it across the entire United States, it would be nine feet deep. So put that in your head and think about it. These are huge volumes of water and they actually control the weather and not only on a local scale, but on a regional scale across the Eastern United States. And yes, and we may touch on this a little later, if you get the right wind direction off the Great Lakes, you can actually see lake effect snow down along the Appalachians. Very, very interesting. So a little bit, I just wanna dive a little bit more into this, right? Cause we, we, we touched on what the lake effect snow is. 
uh, wind direction for Lake Erie. Uh, if you look at the, the length and the width of the lake, not so much the depth or the, the longitude, but the latitude, you think west-southwest winds. And then how do you forecast the time that it's going to occur? Say, like you said, 10 degree Fahrenheit air moving over 40 degree waters. At what point does that stop? We're looking at what kind of difference in the, the for maximum occurrence to happen. And then for how long is this going to occur? How do you know when the, the valve shuts off? Yeah, it's a very interesting <clears throat> and important question there. I, I like the question. The question is, how long is it going to last? <laughs> What's the intensity going to be in addition to where it's going to occur? What's important is you need cold air moving across the Great Lakes, but that cold air has to be deep enough to allow clouds to grow to a great enough depth to produce snowfall. If the cold air is really, really shallow, like that cold air that dams here on the east side of the Appalachians and is really shallow, you're not going to develop the clouds to produce lake effect snow. So that's a very important parameter. As far as how long is it going to last, once again, once that layer of cold air becomes shallow enough that it gets squeezed out by high pressure that moves across the area and begins to produce subsidence, that will cut off the lake effect snow. But in any particular locale, any location, it's the wind direction that determines where the snow band is going to be. So that snow band may be going like uh, crazy over your little suburb, your area, and as little as a 10 degree shift in wind, just like that, will kick the snow band 10 or 15 miles north of you or south of you, and you'll go into clear skies at times. So. It's a, it's a very, very intricate set of parameters that, that produce lake effect snow. Uh, again, temperature difference to get that heat and moisture off the lake, the depth of the cold air to allow clouds to grow, and then the wind direction, which determines where that will all uh, occur. And if you put all those parameters together and keep the winds in one direction for a long period of time, then you get pasted with snow. If you're under that snow band, Think about the fact that it can produce four to six inches of snow an hour. Put that snow band over you for about an eight hour period, and you're looking at anywhere from 32 to 36 inches of snow. Very insightful. Thank you for those answers. I got one more topic to, to ask you about, and then I'm going to hand this off to Scotty. Um, tell us about some of your most memorable winter events. Mm. <laughs> Being or from up north, uh, you probably can give you one a year uh, from up there. but. Um, and again, many of you too young to remember this, but one of the coldest winters on record in the Eastern United States was back in the winter of 1976-77. And in January of 1977, uh, everything came together in the right or wrong place, depending on how you would define it, at, at the right place at the right time into upstate New York, Western New York off of Lake Erie and produced a five-day blizzard known as the blizzard of 77 in Buffalo, New York. Um, unfortunately, 29 people died during the blizzard. Many of them were found frozen in their cars that had gotten covered over by snowfall from five days. And think about this, five days of blizzard conditions. Blizzard conditions that stranded people on roadways. Back then, you didn't have cell phones. You couldn't get on that phone and just call someone to help you. The conditions occurred with temperatures down near the freezing or the zero mark and wind chills down to 20 to 30 below zero. Anyone caught outside in that storm was in peril. And again, unfortunately, there were 
many, many people that died from that. That was probably the benchmark storm for me because the intensity and the duration of that event. Um, but we've had other um, really interesting uh, lake effect snow events that have occurred. Uh, back in Christmas week of 2001, I was working at the office in Buffalo. And during that week, we picked up 82 inches of snow. And this wasn't in mountainous areas or areas that were not populated. It was right across the city of Buffalo. And that really put the city at a standstill for several days. Tom, when you had a chance to go to the Weather Channel, your area of responsibility grew from upstate New York to the entire country. What was that learning curve like? Oh, man, what an education to go from forecasting for, you know, several counties in a portion of the state, and then all of a sudden ending up being responsible for forecasts across the entire nation. At any one point in time, and I've had this happen more than once in my career there, I'd be covering a storm coming into the West Coast, pasting the Sierra with heavy snow, a second weather system that was developing a lee cyclogenesis coming off of the Rockies, and maybe a third weather system that was working up the East Coast to produce a Northeast snowstorm. As I got into that, I began to understand the United States as a whole and what an amazing natural laboratory it is for studying the weather. Check the map out here. This is what I use when I train the forecasters and meteorologists that are at the Weather Channel. There's several features in the United States that make this a great natural laboratory. We start with the mountains, the Western and the Eastern mountains. They not only, their elevations, trap a tremendous amount of cold air and wring moisture out, but they actually are responsible for developing their own storms. Lee cyclogenesis, low pressure systems that would develop either in Colorado area or across the Carolinas here and just off the coast to produce massive winter storms. All right, so you've got the mountains. The mountains kind of ring in the United States on either side here. And what they do is they take and they channel all of this cold air. That's the second ingredient you need for snow, right? Cold air and moisture. That cold air comes down unimpeded from Canada in across the United States and can get as, as far south as the coastal areas of the Gulf Coast. And that is just amazing. So here you have this continent. You've got the mountains to start. You've got the cold air that comes down from Canada. And now you've got three significant moisture sources to produce that snowfall. The Pacific Ocean, it hammers the Sierra in through the Cascades with mo the most snow that we see in the United States. Uh, Paradise Ranger Station up Mount Rainier in the Cascades gets over a thousand inches of snow in some seasons. Think about that fact. Now, that's your first source of moisture coming off the Pacific. Your second source is the Gulf of Mexico. What an amazing source of moisture that comes northward into that cold air and is responsible for the tremendous snowstorms we see from Colorado working its way right up into the Great Lakes region. And down in the southern United States, that cold air can be shallow enough that the Gulf air rides over it to produce some major ice storms. And then we've got our next feature, and that is the Atlantic Ocean. We're all familiar with that because that's what's going to fuel a lot of the snow that occurs here along the east coast of the United States. And by the way, what I call the turbocharger, the turbocharger is the Gulf Stream. That'll take that storm that's really firing up off the Carolinas and infuse it with so much more energy that it really cranks as, as it develops into a nor'easter going up into New England. So all in all, 
that education in the seven years at the Weather Channel taught me just how amazing the United States is and the North American continent for producing winter weather. Tom, let's, uh, let's take a little bit of that and translate it into the Southeast here in the Carolinas, Tennessee, Virginia, Georgia. Um, for us um, to get winter weather here, you kind of talked a little bit about the, the CAD situation. What are our typical setups? We hear Miller A, Miller B systems. Talk to us about what, what we need to see here in the Southeast to get a winter storm. Well, again, I always talk about two ingredients, right? You need cold air and you need moisture. And it doesn't have to be exceptionally cold air. It just has to be cold enough. But my gosh, that temperature profile in the atmosphere, where the air is cold and where the air is warm, means everything as to the type of precipitation you get. Now, you get across the Carolinas in the southeast, you're east of the Appalachian Range. And so very often, you will end up seeing events that set up that bring really cold air from New England down along the east side of the Appalachians. And many of us are familiar with the term cold air damming or the wedge. That cold air that slides down, it's very shallow. It's kind of like molasses. It moves its way down along the east side of the Appalachians and it sits in there. All right, there's ingredient number one. We've got the cold air. If the cold air is really, really shallow, then that can be a real serious issue for the Carolinas because ingredient number two is typically going to be a system that is coming somewhere out of the Gulf of Mexico. Well, we talk about the Miller type A, Miller type B systems, but let's keep it even more basic than that. Low pressure system coming out of the Gulf of Mexico is bringing all of this moisture northward along the east coast of the US. And it's not exceptionally cold. There's a lot of moisture there, but it's relatively warm. Oftentimes we see in the Carolinas that this moist air will move northeastward along the coast. And what I've got next to me is one of the most interesting storms I had looked at in uh, the years that I had worked with uh, snowstorms and ice storms along the southeastern part of the United States. And this storm is back from December 2nd through 4th. And I think this was back in trying to look at the exact date on there. I can't see it on there. I think it was 2002. Mm -hmm. That's right. This is one of the worst ice storms that occurred in the southeastern United States uh, in, in many, many decades. In fact, in the Raleigh area, I think you had over an inch of ice that occurred from this storm. There were hundreds of thousands of people without power. I believe there were 24 deaths attributed to this storm. But it's a classic setup from a meteorological standpoint here. You've got very cold air to the north of that storm that comes down along the east side of the Appalachians. Uh, Appalachians. It's very shallow. You bring warm moist air above that. What will happen is snow starts high up in the atmosphere. It melts as it comes down into that warmer air. And then when it hits that cold air right near the surface, it ends up hitting anything that's below the freezing mark and instantly freezing. And because there was so much moisture with this storm, it moved relatively slowly. So there was a long duration. That combination of cold air at the surface and warmer air aloft produced uh, what, what again was an epic ice storm there. As of uh, here in January, uh, mid to late January, much of the East Coast, Southeast, I would even say the Tennessee Valley, um, has not really seen a lot of winter weather. It, it, you know, we've, we've had really warm conditions. Uh, as we go back, I know for a lot of locations in Western Central North Carolina, it's been over 400 days. You'd have to go back to December 2018 since we've seen measurable snowfall outside of the mountains. Obviously, the mountains have seen some snowfall. 
what has contributed to that? Why do you think over the last couple of years, it seems like the snow um, chances are decreasing in much of the Southeast? Well, obviously there can be a, a number of parameters that contribute to that. Uh, you can certainly have weather patterns that operate on many different scales from more of a local or regional scale uh, to a hemispheric scale uh, that certainly modulate the winter weather across different parts of the, of the globe and across our latitudes. You know, we've, we've had two, up to this point, two relatively mild, and I, I might say uh, very mild, uh, winters uh, across the southeastern U.S. We've, we've had a jet stream that has been uh, defined by uh, oftentimes a uh, trough in the western U.S. and a ridge over the eastern U.S., which is not allowing much in the way of cold air to get down into this part of the world. But you can't neglect the fact that all this is occurring on a background of a warming globe. And that climatic change, that warmth, is going to produce certain results. We don't know exactly what that is contributing to in the way of modulating our seasonal weather patterns here, but it certainly has to be doing something. We'll often look at uh, other factors on a large scale that help to modulate seasonal weather across parts of this continent. And so is one example, okay? And we're always quoting El Nino or La Nino, whatever phase of ENSO that we might be in, and looking at that as a possible modulator for a seasonal uh, forecast across the United States. But there are so many other factors that come into play uh, from mid to high latitudes. And when you, you talk about the Eastern United States, you talk about other factors that can influence that pattern in the season. It could be anything from ice cover in the Arctic to snow cover in Siberia uh, to other factors that. Uh, influence the mid and high latitude flow across, the, uh, across North America. Uh, features that are indexed or measured by uh, things such as uh, the NAO, uh, North Atlantic Oscillation, the Arctic Oscillation. Those types of factors in there also play a role in the seasonal weather. But there's no doubt um, that the past two winters here, I mean, for someone like me who's a snow lover, it's been few and far between. Even extrapolating that over the last decade or so, uh, we kind of transitioned to Northwest flow snow and how that pertains to the Carolinas. Uh, there's been a serious decrease in bigger Northwest flow snow events over the uh, Western North Carolina, Eastern Tennessee area. That, that affects you because you've just recently moved to Roane Mountain, a place of legend in the Northwest flow conversation. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what it's like to live there and, and also how Northwest flow snow is similar to lake effect snow. Yeah, well, again, uh, I'll go back to the fact that you need two, <laughs> two ingredients, right? For snowfall, you, you need cold air and you need moisture. Uh, and there's a couple of ways that you can get cold air. Um, you know, you can move to the far Northern parts of the country to get in where it's colder, right? Going up toward Minnesota or Maine in those areas. But you can also get to colder air by elevation. All you have to do is go up in the atmosphere. And so that's why these mountainous areas are so great for skiing, right? Um, uh, because the temperature drops about three degrees per 1,000 feet on average. Um, and, and so as you get up in elevation here, there's a much better chance for, uh, for the precipitation of fall of snow. 
Um, you talk about Northwest flow events. These are winds, Northwest winds that will come down across the Appalachian range and produce snowfall. Um, the Appalachians run from the Southwest to the Northeast. So if you have a Northwest wind, it's hitting that mountain range just about perfectly perpendicular, isn't it? And that's the best chance to get lift in the atmosphere, to get what we refer to as orographic lift. And that lift can help squeeze out any moisture in the form of precipitation across the windward side of the mountains where that wind is coming from. But what's interesting is Northwest flow also emanates from an area called the Great Lakes. And so oftentimes, if the flow is very well aligned, it comes off the Great Lakes, you can actually get channels of moisture that will propagate hundreds of miles downstream. When that little area of moist air is moving along and it gets that little kick going over the mountains, that's when the snow can get kicked out. And so oftentimes we get some pretty significant snow events in what otherwise would not be a snowy uh, setup across this part of the world. Well, Tom, we've certainly appreciated your time tonight. Uh, if our followers want to follow you on social media, I know you like to tweet and you tweet out articles. Uh, how can they do that? Well, I'm at, uh, it, it'll be at Tom Nizzle, and uh, you'll be able to get to me there on Twitter. And I, I, I have my Facebook page as well. And uh, if you're interested in snowflakes, I have a Facebook page called Mother Nature Snowflakes. So uh, you can hit me at all those spots. And um, yeah, yeah, I'll friend you for sure. Awesome. Well, go follow Tom on social media. Great follow. Check out his snow photography. Hopefully we can get you a few more snow events up there uh, in the East Tennessee Mountains before winter ends. And uh, we've appreciated you being with us tonight. As always, we thank you for watching the Carolina Weather Group. Remember to like and subscribe our podcast. Send us any requests. If you have any guests or topics you'd like for us to talk about, send them our way. Until next time, have a great one. More of our conversation when the Carolina Weather Group returns after this short break. Welcome back to the Carolina Weather Group. 